Section 18. The French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The French Revolution by Hilaire Belloc. Section 18. Chapter 4 continued. The Phases of the Revolution. Phase 6 continued. Robespierre was at this moment the chief figure in the eyes of the crowd, and was soon to be the chief revolutionary figure in the eyes of Europe. That is the first point. The second is of equal importance, and is far less generally recognized. He was not, and was never destined to be, the chief force in the revolutionary government. As to the first point, Robespierre had obtained this position from the following combination of circumstances. First, alone of the revolutionary personalities, he had been continually before the public eye from the beginning. He had been a member of the first parliament of all, and had spoken in that parliament in the first month of its sessions. Though then obscure in Versailles, he was already well known in his province and the native town of Arras. Secondly, this position of his in the public eye was maintained without a break, and his position and reputation had increased by accumulation month after month for the whole four years. No one else was left in the political arena of whom this could be said. All the old reactionaries had gone, all the moderate men had gone, the figures of 1793 were all new figures, except Robespierre, and he owed this continued and steady increase of fame to, thirdly, his conspicuous and vivid sincerity. He was more wholly possessed of the democratic faith of the contract social than any other man of his time. He had never swerved from an article of it. There is no better engine for enduring fame than the expression of real convictions. Moreover, fourthly, his speeches exactly echoed the opinions of his audience and echoed them with a lucidity which his audience could not have commanded. Whether he possessed true eloquence or no is a matter still debated by those who are scholars in French letters, but it is certain that he had in his own time all the effects of a great order, though his manner was precise and cold. Fifthly, he was possessed of a consistent body of doctrine. That is, he was not only convinced of the general democratic creed which his contemporaries held, and he not only held it unswervingly and uncorruptedly, but he could supplement it with a system of morals and even something which was the adumeration of religion. Sixthly, he had, as such characters always can, but not often do, gather round themselves a group of intensely devoted personal admirers and supporters, chief of whom was the young and splendidly courageous St. Just. It was the combination of all these things, I say, which made Robespierre the chief personality in the public eye, when he entered the Committee of Public Safety on the 27th of July, 1793. Now, let it be noted that, unlike his follower St. Just, and exceedingly unlike Danton, Robespierre possessed none of those military qualities without which it is impossible to be responsible for government over a military nation, especially if that nation be in the act of war. And such a war. The Committee of Public Safety was the Caesar of revolutionary France. 
Robespierre, as a member of that Caesar, was hopeless. His popularity was an advantage to his colleagues in the committee, but his conception of action upon the frontier was vague, personal, and futile. His ambition for leadership, if it existed, was subordinate to his ambition to be the savior of his people and of their democratic experiment, and he had no comprehension of those functions of leadership by which he can coordinate detail and impose a plan of action. Robespierre, therefore, in every crisis of the last year we are about to study, yielded to his colleagues, never impressed them, and never led them, and yet it was the irony of his fate, was imagined by his fellow countrymen and by the warring governments of Europe to be the master of them all. The first weeks after his appearance in the Committee of Public Safety were the critical weeks of the whole revolutionary movement. The despotic action of Paris, which I have concluded to be secretly supported by the committee, had provoked insurrection upon all sides in the provinces. Normandy had protested, and on the 13th of July a Norman girl stabbed Marat to death. Lyons, as we have seen, had been some weeks in revolt. Marseilles had rebelled in the first week of June. Bordeaux, on the whole department of the Gironde, had of course risen, for their men were at stake. Later, Toulon, the great naval depot of France, revolted. A reactionary municipal provincial government was formed in that port. The little boy imprisoned in the temple, heir to the kingdom, was proclaimed under the title of Louis Seventeen, And before the end of August, the English and Spanish fleets had been admitted into the harbor, and an excellent foreign garrison was defending the town against the national government. Meanwhile, the Allies upon the Belgian frontier were doing what they could, taking fortress after fortress, and while Mayence was falling on the Rhine, Valenciennes and Condé were capitulating on the northeastern border. And a portion of the Allied army was marching to besiege Dunkirk. The insurrection in Vendée, which had broken out in the early part of the year, though checked by the resistance of Nantes, was still successful in the field. Footnote. On page 403 of my monograph on Danton, Nesbitt and Company, 1899, the reader will find an unpublished report of the Committee of Public Safety drawn up immediately before the destruction of the Girondins on the 31st of May. It forms, in my view, conclusive evidence read in the light of their other actions of the Committee's determination to side with Paris. It was in the month of August that a successful effort was made. Carnot, who soon proved the military genius of the revolution, entered the Committee of Public Safety. On the 23rd of the month, a true levy, very different from the futile and insufficiently applied attempt of the spring, was forced upon the nation by a vote in Parliament. It was a levy of men, vehicles, animals, and provision, and soon furnished something not far short of half a million soldiers. With September, the tide turned. The first victory in this crisis of the struggle of Honshut relieved Dunkirk in the early days of September. By mid-October, a second and decisive victory, that of Watignens, relieved Maubourg. Lyons had been taken. Normandy was pacified long before. 
By the end of the year, Toulon was reoccupied, and at the same time, the last cohesive force of the Vendeans destroyed. But meanwhile, the crisis had had a double effect, moral and material. The moral effect had been a sort of national madness in which the most extreme measures were proposed, and many of them carried through with what one may call a creative audacity. The calendar itself was changed, the week itself abolished, the months renamed and readjusted. Such an act sufficiently symbolizes the mental attitude of the revolutionaries. They were determined upon a new earth. There went with this last and most violent attack upon what was believed to be the last remnants of Catholicism in the country, a hideous persecution of the priesthood, in which an uncounted number of priests died under the rigors of transportation or of violence. The reprisals against the rebels varied from severity of the most awful kind to cruelty that was clearly insane, and of which the worst examples took place at Arras and Nantes. In all this turmoil, the governing centre of the country, the Committee of Public Safety, not only kept its head, but used the enormous forces of the storm for the purposes of achieving military success under that system known as the Terror, which was for them no more than martial law and an engine of their despotic control. Of the two thousand and more that passed before the Revolutionary Tribunal and were executed in Paris, the large majority were those whom the Committee of Public Safety judged to be obstacles to their military policy, and most were men or women who had broken some specific part of the martial code which the government had laid down. Some were generals who had failed or were suspected of treason, and some among the most conspicuous were politicians who had attempted to check so absolute a method of conducting the war. Of these, the greatest was Danton. Before the end of 1793, he began to protest against the system of the terror. He believed, perhaps, that the country was now safe in the military sense and needed such rigors no more. But the committee disagreed, and were evidence available, we should perceive that Carnot in particular determined that such opposition must cease. Danton and his colleagues, including Desmolins, the journalist of the revolution and the chief publicist who promoted the days of July 1789, were executed in the first week of April 1794. The End of Section 18